0: You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. Today, we are back talking with Anthony Morabito from Altegra Property Group, very much a leading commercial property real estate business in Western Australia. We only have experts on this show. Anthony, thank you very much for coming in again. We're going to be chatting more about commercial property, obviously.
0: Trent, great to be here again, mate.
1: Last time we chatted about a bit of an intro to commercial property, just an idea of why would we invest in commercial property, what commercial property opportunities there might be. Today, we're going to get deeper into the actual development of commercial property because not only can we just buy existing sites, we can also develop those sites just like we would develop residential properties and and rent them or sell them, right?
0: Yeah, correct. I think in the market with current stock levels around investment grade commercial assets, there has been more of a focus from commercial property landowners to look at potentially unlocking or how they unlock extra value in their land, and one way to do that is obviously through developing that land. And commercial development is certainly been quite active in recent times.
1: Now, with residential development, you know you've either got single-storey units, you've got family homes, you've got townhouses, and you've got apartments, right? They've got fairly similar metrics, especially the single-storey and townhouse development. But with commercial development, there are so many different sectors that determine the value of these things, but also, I guess, so many different sectors that have their own pathway to de-risking the development, which includes the different types of tenants that you would get in, right?
0: Yeah, correct. And a lot of it does start with understanding the planning and, and zoning of that particular parcel of land. So the various councils throughout WA have their own town planning schemes that will dictate what type of premises you can operate from any particular part of of, of land.
1: Different to the residential codes, right, where it's sort of R20, R30, R40. It's a next level of that, of can this be residential, can this be commercial? If so, what type of commercial, right?
0: Absolutely. So... Uh, there are various various zones and, and, and planning schemes that will dictate that, and sometimes there's an opportunity to have a mixed-use development opportunity where you can collaborate with some commercial and residential on the same lot. Others are a bit more restrictive, and obviously you've got industrial zone land where primarily that land is, is set aside for industrial development. And also, in a retail sense, there would be dedicated areas where you could only develop retail and that that sort of dictated by the planning schemes that councils put in place.
1: And that dictates the type of commercial development we would be looking at developing on that site. And obviously, I think it'd be more of a reverse engineering of that. It'd be choosing the type of commercial development we want to do based on the industry we're interested in or the one we see the most opportunity and then finding the site, right?
0: Correct. And through the economic period of the last five or six years, not every commercial sector has been uh, performing to a point where it's enticing for developers to go and either develop on spec or try and pursue a tenant opportunity to develop a design and construct for that tenant. So a few of the sectors that we have been concentrating on are healthcare sectors, childcare and fuel. Uh, there's been solid interest from tenants even through uh, WA's economic sort of period the last five years in in those sectors where operators are actually wanting to either gain a foothold or expand uh, their footprint within the Perth and WA markets.
1: Fuel is an interesting one. I feel like 10 years ago, petrol stations, they were a dying breed. They were turning into remediation sites where you'd have pool suppliers and nondescript commercial or even vacant blocks. And then it seems like in the last couple of years, they've come back in in droves you've got the you know vibes your 7-11s there's new brands that are just filling or refilling places that used to be an ampol or a caltex 15 years ago what's going on
0: yeah isn't fuel on the way out fuel has been driven a lot by retail so i think if you cast your mind back to 10 15 years ago your basic fuel station would be uh, some some pumps and a very small outlet where you just go and pay for your fuel you might you get in to, and out as fast as you, you can you might be able to buy a bag of ice or a loaf of bread or a pack of chewies or a pack of smokes back in the day but that was about it what you've seen now is very much the operators that are operating significant sites um, there's a focus on diesel now going into to fuel sites as well as, as unleaded um, but their retail offering is significantly enhanced from from what we've seen sort of 10-15 years ago so re- retail that- retail outlets now now for fuel you're looking at sort of 250 to 300 square meter potentially retail outlets and if you speak to the operators where they make their margin is in those retail outlets so the fuel is very much the uh, the carrot if you like to get the patron in but where they make their margin is very much so in that in that retail store.
1: And I guess that's the future isn't it is they've pivoted away from trying to make money off of fuel. I remember one of my early jobs in, in a different life one of my jobs was to analyse the profit levels that these you know, a Shell or a Caltex would make on fuel, and it was literally one or two cents a litre. Of all of that, they make one or two cents a litre. So they're not making it on that; they're making it on the five-dollar Malteser packs. So the more space they have for more of that, and you can see they're creating, you know, they're building in other brands, the Mug and Bean and the Foodery, and all these different brands that they're bringing in to get people to not only come to a petrol station but stay and spend more money, and then you know nick off later, as if every petrol station is a is a roadhouse nearly.
0: Correct. You've got. Cafe offerings—you've got, you know, Pie Face, you've got Krispy Kreme—so very much about coming to get the fuel, but also spending money within that that retail shop.
1: So as a developer, we're not the operator, we're not the tenant, we're not the one—the Mug and Bean, the the BP, the Shell—we're the person who owns the building and we lease it out to them. What's our pathway, I guess, to finding a site, getting that zoned for what is you know environmentally not the easiest thing to get zoned for, and then finding a tenant. Uh, to be able to have the confidence to go through development approval and, and build this thing.
0: Yeah. So I think finding finding the site with the appropriate zoning is certainly the, the biggest challenge and hurdle that you need to overcome from the outset when looking to develop a fuel station. If the fuel station is located in a, in a high-traffic location with enough passing trade opportunity and it's in a catchment where it's not saturated with competitor activity, that will generally lend itself to an operator considering that site uh, as a, as a design and construct tenant. So really capturing the, the zoning straight off the bat is, is probably the most important part. Once you've got that, there are a host of, of operators out there at the moment and we're still seeing operators coming into the market, believe it or not, and sort of establishing a presence. There's, there's a couple of operators at the moment based from South Australia who are about to put a foothold here in the, in the WA market and uh, they see real opportunities for their offering to come in and, and disrupt the players that are already here. So... There's certainly a variety of tenants and they're all offering something different primarily through their, their retail offering.
1: How much sort of money do we need as a, as a developer, the owner of this asset, to be able to buy the site and develop the site? Surely not a poor man's game.
0: No, and developing a fuel site can be can be quite costly uh, depending on the on the scale of that site. So there's been a trend in the last couple of years now with a lot of the fuel organizations looking to incorporate larger sites where they can facilitate uh, diesel and and you know large vehicles so trucks and road trains etc
1: future electric as well i'm sure
0: yeah i mean electric is something that gets spoken about a lot when you talk about fuel i'm still unsure as to how the current fuel stations make that leap into electric cars and what their value proposition will be when electric cars eventually do arrive en masse.
1: Well, my my thought would be even more of a proposition because it's going to take probably 15, 20 minutes to fill one of these cars up with the with the juice and then what are they doing in that time? They're probably hanging out at the cafe.
0: Yeah, correct, yeah.
1: Back to the question, we're talking a couple of mil at least to buy the site, right? And then probably you know, a couple of mil at least more to develop the asset itself.
0: Correct, yeah. A lot of developing comes down to securing the land at the right price, so... I think primarily your development cost for the built form is going to be consistent wherever it is, but identifying sites where you can actually acquire land at a reasonable cost so that you can actually maximise the developer profit and margin on completion is is really the the critical component to, to having that. Keeping in mind, these leases that you're signing with the fuel companies are typically around 12 to 15 years on an initial term plus options to extend thereafter. So, they are one of the few asset classes where you can get a, a long-term uh, lease out of the out of the investment.
1: And when you compare that to deposit term deposits these days, uh, you know, 6-7% starts to look pretty attractive to people, especially pension funds.
0: Yeah, and look there's a lot of uh, activity on the investment market with fuel stations. And so if you're looking as a developer to build and then uh, sell on completion a, an established fuel station, I think valuers are typically looking at that at a sort of yield of around you know, 6 to 6.5% six depending on the location and the operator. And that can be even tighter on the East Coast. But here in WA, typically the transactions we see for, for leased assets with, with good fuel operators are between that you know, 6 and 6.5% six and return.
1: So the idea here would be to be able to build it just like in any residential development, recognize what the rent that the operator will pay, divide that out by maybe 6, six and 6.5%, maybe that comes to $4 million, right? If you can build it for $3 million, well, there's a $1 million on the table for you. Sounds That's simple. Pretty much, you know, the, the back of the envelope way. Yep. But that, that, I guess, we're about to speak about childcare and healthcare as well. Same uh, formula, really, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. And, and sort of moving on to childcare is another asset class. So when you look at the lease, uh, the lease terms, so sort of 12 to 15 years, I mean, that's an extended lease term for an investment to have a, a single tenant there and have a guaranteed return on on your investment. So, I mean, childcare is, is one that offers that as well. The zoning requirements for childcare um, are a bit more straightforward than, than fuel in that most uh, residential areas, there will be an opportunity for childcare to go into those residential areas as a discretionary use under a lot of the council planning schemes. Explain that. So discretionary use uh, basically means that the council can exercise their discretion uh, as to whether they would accept that development in that particular area. And that will often be assessed based on what else is in the area, uh, traffic impact, uh, car parking requirements, um, and and the like. So
1: I guess a little bit similar to if you had a split code, a dual density code, where at R20, it's a given, you can develop that site at that density. But at R40, you have to meet XYZ criteria and then we'll add our discretion approve a development at that density.
0: Yeah, correct. I think what we've seen as well is going back five, 10 years, a lot of converted homes turned into childcare centres. So that's happened through the ability to be able to go into those residential areas and actually have a childcare centre operate within the residential zone. The trend over the last five years has been more heading towards purpose-built centres. So knock down, rebuild. Correct, and what you're seeing in that is that there's been a lot of activity from developers with established operators looking to again grow their footprint here in in Perth and WA. So there's certainly been a massive spike in the number of centres and development activity in that childcare sector. And the quality of centres that you look at now compared to 10 years ago, there's an absolute remarkable difference in, in the quality of those centres. We're talking purpose-built, um, early learning-type facilities.
1: They're very impressive. I've been through a few very recently, and I was expecting this sort of daycare where, you know, fairy bread out for lunch and there's crap everywhere, and old, you know, renovated houses, uh, more of that daddy daycare sort of thing, right? But you're right, these are impressive world-class, brand-new facilities, most of them with specific hourly programs of how these children are taught, making specific things for these purposes to understand this aspect of the world. They're learning about marine animals today. And obviously, it's at a three-year-old level, but it's, it's, there's a curriculum, and every centre has a curriculum planner, as if it's you know a, a school. And, and they're, they're building these to that level now, and I think that's because parents are expecting that as well, is it's no longer a babysitting service. It's very much a precursor to school.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think you, you've nailed it there. It's, it's no longer just a babysitting service. So it is actually viewed now more mainstream that you, know, you put your kids into an early learning centre and it's a it's viewed as a good stepping stone for them moving into you know, primary education. The other thing that has underpinned or does still underpin that the sector is a significant amount of government funding that's allocated to childcare. So... Obviously, the federal government has a very generous, let's say, uh, package that uh, subsidises a significant portion of the daily childcare fee. This now makes it very accessible to most families to have two working parents and then have their kids in care and not have the onerous fees that go with having your kid or kids in, in care.
1: And that's the unique thing about the valuation of a childcare center, right? Because the other, rest of the commercial, which is generally a per square meter rate, like a warehouse, for example, maybe $300 per square meter per year. And then that's your value, right? Either your cap rate of 6% and there's your value. With the childcare, it's not based on a per square meter rate. What's it based on?
0: So the rental methodology for childcare is based on a, a value per licensed place. So what that means is when, when a center is, is built... Or when an operator goes in to start operating a new centre, that centre is assessed and the operator is given a, a number of licensed places that they may, they may have operating from that centre. So how many kids you can have? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that then really dictates you know, their capacity as a centre and the rent is attributed based on that number of places and that's how you arrive at the, the annual rental figure
1: and out of that annual rental figure. Again, someone who might buy that place might be paying it at a 6.5% yield, might be valuing it at a 6.5% yield. There's your value. And if you're developing these sites, if you can get the planning side right, get the right tenant in, which would allow you to have a lower yield based on the de-risking of that long-term tenant, then if you can build it for less than what the 6.5% capitalization rate would say the value is, then there's your profit line, right? Certainly. Same thing.
0: Yep. And there's been, again a bit of a perfect storm of activity. We've had a lot of operator interest looking at Perth as an undersupplied market for quality childcare product.
1: Is it undersupplied?
0: In certain areas, it still is. I think we've seen a lot of development happening in some of the emerging suburbs, so a lot of the greenfield suburbs. Where Why is
1: that? Why is it emerging? Is it because it's easier for a developer to go in and build on yellow sand?
0: That That's a factor. Availability of land supply is certainly one, but also operators uh, acknowledging that their target market is generally young families and you're looking at emerging residential areas. Typically, uh, their target residents are young families. So there's there's been a um, sort of a perfect storm and marry-up of those two scenarios.
1: But the ironic thing about this market is that where you expect where most of the young families are, which is true, out on the fringes, that's where the oversupply of operators is and therefore what's happening is the occupancy rate of these places, the performance of these places financially is far worse than the places where there is an undersupply closer to the city.
0: Correct. So as a developer, you'd really now be focusing your efforts in sort of the the infill areas that we like to call them. So we're talking about established suburbs with a sort of target audience there of, of younger families where you may be able to acquire a parcel of land or parcels of land and you've already got an established catchment or trade option there for a potential tenant to come in and leverage from. And those areas typically uh, will have less competition because historically, if they're built up, there's less available land supply for someone to go and actually build a new childcare centre. So the opportunities are more geared towards acquiring established premises and redeveloping those into uh, purpose-built centres.
1: I guess that's where the opportunity is. If you can knock down and build a new centre, which provides for that high-class performance where you're going to get all your parents wanting to go to, even if there are a few older, repurposed houses around, that's where your opportunity is. And it's also where you can charge a higher fee per, per, per placement, I guess.
0: Yes, there's been an absolute, what we call, flight to quality for childcare, with more operators coming into the market and the level of sophistication uh, increasing greatly, I think the expectation of parents now has, has changed in that you know, you've got the government subsidy there underpinning a significant amount of your daily fee that you're paying to put that child into care. So then it becomes about you putting your child into the best available care because as a parent you want to be doing the best for your child. That's just human nature. So if there's a 2 or $3 difference after subsidy of sending little Johnny to the old converted house down the road or to the brand new centre.
1: The better teachers or carers, they're going to be wanting to go to the nicer place to work as well, right?
0: Correct, correct. So there's definitely the flight to quality that's happening there. And, and what's happened is over the years, as the new centres have come online, they've now set the benchmark. And so that's why you're seeing the whole industry kind of being brought up to a standard that five, ten years ago was, was certainly not there. So
1: It really reminds me of the residential unit market where if you see new unit product it sells easily. It sells well at a higher price. Stuff that's five to ten years old, same square meterage, same services, but just you know, depreciated. Heavily, heavily discounted in price. It's, it's the same with the apartments, right? That yep. seems to run similar in that commercial space with childcare.
0: I mean, markets are always evolving and changing. That's the beauty of um, evolution, I suppose. And, and th- that sector is going through uh, an evolution at the moment in terms of the Expectation and it's it's very mainstream now, so it's 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 no longer a um, you know it's not a niche, yeah. So it's uh, yeah again two working two working parents to sustain a household. It's, it's quite common to put kids into, into daycare.
1: Well, and the more women that enter the workforce, I think the more likely, especially in the inner suburbs where more professional women, I guess, would be working close to the city, the more demand there's going to be for these higher quality places. And when more parents realise that it's not just a babysitting service anymore, it's actually probably a learning centre that... Could, has a better capacity than possibly the mum to teach these kids because they're trained to do so, uh, you might find... Uh, I would have thought there'd be ongoing um, higher uptake as a percentage in the urban infill areas as well.
0: Yeah. And from, an, from a property investment point of view, the fact that you've got a significant amount of government money backing a lot of these centres by way of the grants and the um, subsidies gives investors a lot of security and a feeling of security that that industry is a strong one that they're happy to invest in because they are very much purpose-built facilities. So it's not like uh, if that tenant was to move out at the end of their lease, you can just go and lease it out as an office. Uh, If you develop a childcare centre, you've got a childcare centre. So the fact that there's government money underpinning that certainly gives investors and developers a lot of a lot of security and and you know that there's longevity in the industry
1: finally uh, and probably more briefly healthcare explain that and how that compares to the last two commercial types of developments that we've just spoken about
0: yeah so certainly healthcare as an industry is what we call we we'll never say anything's recession proof but we've got an aging population uh, and a growing population where the requirement for healthcare services is is growing.
1: Give us an example of a healthcare commercial property.
0: Look in a, in a simple form: um, medical centres, uh, physios, psychologists, research and development type opportunities or, or tenants. So, allied health centres can incorporate all of those into one building, uh, or you may look at just developing a you know a medical centre for a medical group and then have the pharmacy sitting off to the side of that. So, medical centres have been a uh, popular. Uh, development asset class over the last six or seven years and that's tapered off more so in the last couple of years due to some changes in government regulation around doctors being able to come in from overseas and work within the metropolitan area in Perth. The challenge now there is that there is a shortage of doctors and GPs locally and uh, with the government restricting movements from overseas trained doctors to come work in Perth, that's restricting the new development opportunities for As in the demand centers. for new centres, because yeah, you've got less, go and, less doctors operate. demanding rooms. Correct. And and a lot of the problem in is that a, a doctor may go and open a new medical centre, but not necessarily be able to staff it with enough GPs to meet perceived demand in that area. So what you've seen is them just hold back on doing anything new
1: it's consolidated into the existing centers
0: yeah correct so that that, that that's a sector where i think it's going there's, there's still some change to to play out and i think as we see the population growth uh reignites hopefully over over the next few years i think that's something that will probably need to be looked at to be able to bring in the overseas trained doctors
1: and what how are they paying for their rent square meterage
0: it's a square meter rate, yeah yep
1: and i guess that is just very much related to the location Rather, like, rather than the service itself?
0: Yeah, location-specific there. And, and, I mean, in, in putting these developments together, one of the benefits, they're often seen as blue-chip uh, developments because you've got, a again, a secure tenant, a uh, very long lease term, typically a 10-year lease if you're looking to develop a medical centre. So it's a very solid um, lease term. And in terms of the way they're viewed from the valuations industry, uh, it's, it's, it's very strong in terms of your you know, your yield that they'll look at given the profile of the tenant.
1: Is it any more expensive to develop a medical room, a healthcare room, than it is a retail space?
0: Uh, it'll come back to what in, you're incorporating into that design and construct. So if you're purely providing a, a base building, there's really not a lot of difference between building a medical centre and building a set of offices. There is some infrastructure that goes in under the, under the slab, uh, which incurs a nominal cost. But essentially, building a medical center without the internal fit-out is an office building.
1: There you have it, guys. Three different types of commercial developments that we've spoken about today. Fuel, childcare, and healthcare. All three that are quite prevalent and we believe are going to continue to be prevalent in certain, especially infill areas of Perth. Uh, And uh, I thought it was just a good idea after a lot of conversation about residential development over the last couple of years to start getting to a new level of thought process here, especially for our listeners with a bit more in the back pocket about what they can do with their cash on a development space in commercial. Anthony, thank you very much for coming in again, mate. It's been really, really interesting, even for my side, learning more and more as I go along, my property journey uh, to understand the opportunities I've got as a developer, and not only just in what I do every day in the residential space, but moving into things like childcare and healthcare in the future too.
0: Thanks, Trent. It's been good to talk to you again. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show.